The reading this morning. Am I on? The reading this morning is from Micah, chapter six, verses six to eight, and then the second part is chapter seven, verses eighteen to twenty. This can be found on page nine hundred and twenty-three to twenty-four of your Red Bibles. As it starts, the writer is wondering what he can do to please God. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Thanks, Kate. Hi, everyone. How are you? Good to see you. Someone said to me through the week, wow, it's your last sermon. Are you going to unleash? And I said, well, if, if there's something burning on my heart that I haven't said in six years, it's probably not worth saying. But um, I'll tell you what we are going to do today. We're going to look and see how the prophets paved the way to Jesus Christ. And we're going to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd on what has actually been a tragic week. And I hope that that's going to be a comfort to us all. But I'm going to start by praying, and then we'll get into Micah. Father, um, we're hopeful, we're confident that one day evil will be punished, wrongs will be righted, and peace will rule the earth forever. And so we do not fear and we do not despair this morning, but we depend on the resurrected King, Jesus Christ, to take care of us and one day bring us home. Amen. Well, there's just four days left until Christmas. I don't know if you've done your shopping yet. Presents are always a problem. If you love someone, you give them something that they really want. Ideally, you want to see that look of joyous surprise when they open the gift. And even before you say a word, you just know it was perfect. It's a touchdown, but that doesn't always happen. You work very hard just to find the right gift, and then it doesn't fit, or it's not the right color, or it was broken in the box, or they already had one, or the design didn't match what they already have, or worst of all, they just didn't want it. That's the worst, giving someone a gift that they don't really want. Nothing makes you feel worse. They they unwrap the gift and then there's a pause. It's just a second. And, um, And in that moment, you know the truth. They say, it's beautiful. And you say, do you like it? 
and they say, like it, I love it. But it's not what they wanted, and drop by drop, all the joy drains out of the moment. This week we had our staff Christmas party, we do a secret Santa, and Dave Hambry, who doesn't shave by the way, was given a shaving kit. I saw that look on his face, and then I also saw Daryl Sessions giggling in the corner. (laughs) I think we've all seen those ads that, that say, what do you give a man that has everything? And usually the answer is something bizarre. You give the man that has everything, cologne made from goat's saliva or or a three-volume history of Norfolk Island. (laughs) They have everything that you can think of, and if they don't have it, you can't afford it. And so you scratch your head and you wonder, what can I give them this year? Here's my question for you this Christmas. If you were going to give Jesus a present for his birthday, what could you give him that he would appreciate? After all, Hebrews 1 tells us he is the creator of all things, the one who holds all things together in Colossians 1. What do you give someone that not only has everything, but made everything? It's a tough question, but it's actually a deep question. Is there anything this Christmas the Lord would want from me? What can I give him that would bring a smile to his face? Fortunately, we don't have to wonder about the answer to that question because he has left us a gift suggestion. If you don't know what to give someone, you just ask them, right? Well, what do you want for Christmas? And God's done that for us. The answer is found in the little book of Micah. Maybe you don't know there was a book of Micah, but we've been tracing that book for the month leading up to Christmas. Our series is called Prophets Paving the Way for Christ. Micah's in that section of the Old Testament we call the minor prophets, not because they were unimportant, but just because it's a small book. Micah's the name of the book of the Bible. Micah's also the name of the man, the prophet, who wrote the book. And God gave Micah a a message for his generation, and Micah wrote it down so that people wouldn't forget it. He lived about 700 years before Jesus, and he was a country boy from the town of Morasheth, just outside of Jerusalem. And if you were to do a, a, a character sketch of Micah, you'd probably have these words included, blunt, direct, straight shooter, no nonsense. He loved the common man, he hated the corrupt politicians, He was a prophet of social reform. And three um, phrases describe the situation of his day. International tension, religious corruption, and moral chaos. Israel was caught between three warring nations, the Assyrians, Egypt, and the Philistines. The greatest threat came from the Assyrians, who had kind of exacted a, a kind of a tribute in exchange for peace. So basically, they were in a kind of voluntary national slavery situation. The religious elite were corrupt. Micah speaks against priests who take bribes. And then they say whatever people want to hear. All the leaders are on the take. And moral chaos, that follows from the first two. It was every man for himself, everyone ripping everyone else off, leaders taking bribes, the poor getting ripped off, the merchants couldn't be trusted, the leaders couldn't be trusted, and Micah says you can't even trust potentially the people in your own household. And if you look at the phrases... One thing is clear, it's not very different to Sydney in 2014. And so Micah writes condemning the sin and the hypocrisy rampant among God's people and he warns them of the judgment to come. He pulls no punches, he takes no prisoners. But dropped into his message is a beautiful piece of the Bible, of Scripture. It tells us exactly what God wants from us this Christmas. But first, we're going to look at the wrong answer, what God doesn't want for us. We'll pick it up in Micah 6, verse 6. 
You'll do well to have your Bible open. We'll be all over chapter 6 and 7 for the next uh, couple of minutes. The wrong answer. They say, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come with a burnt offering? With calves a year old? The people have heard Micah's word of warning and they want to know, what does God want from us? And the first answer deals with the quality of the sacrifice. A calf that was a year old was a good quality sacrifice. And they think, maybe we'll give him the best that we have and God will be pleased. And God says, no. So they think, hmm, maybe the Lord will be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil. If he doesn't want quality, maybe he just wants quantity. And God says, no. And so they think maybe, maybe he wants the ultimate sacrifice. Shall I offer my firstborn, they say, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And God says, no way. Get the picture, don't you? This is a, it's a let's make a deal religion. Whatever you want, God, we'll give it to you. You ask the price, we'll meet it, even if it's child sacrifice. They thought God would trade forgiveness for sacrifice. They thought God could be bought just like their leaders. Listen carefully to the tone of those words. This is not a thankful worshipper. This is a spoiled child, a frustrated or weary partner or spouse. If you listen carefully, you don't hear, what does the Lord want from me this Christmas? You hear, what else? What else does God want from me this Christmas? And God rejected every offer made by the Israelites because they had completely missed the point. They wanted a deal, and he wanted their hearts. Which brings us to the right answer in verse 8. This verse has been called the heart of the Old Testament, the greatest verse in all the Old Testaments, the, the kind of verse you want to commit to memory, you put on the back of your toilet door so you can look at it each day. It tells us exactly what good God looks for in our life. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does he require? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly. You know, in the Bible, this concept is applied in very concrete ways. You care for the poor. You remember widows and orphans. You don't plough the corners of your field so that poor people can come along and get something to eat. You speak the truth. You pay a fair wage. You have honest scales. You don't cheat. You refuse to take advantage of people. And for us at Christmas, justice certainly means doing right to the less fortunate because we know God. Mercy. It's doing to others what God has done to you. You In just a few days, 2014 is going to be history. You think back across the terrain of the last 12 months. How has God treated you this year? Has God blessed you? Well, then you bless others. Has God forgiven you? Well, then you forgive others. Has God lifted you up when you were down? Then you lift others up when they were down. Has God overlooked your faults? Then you overlook the faults of others. You know, the word translated mercy is also translated as lovely or or beautiful. It's a quality that's going to make you a beautiful person to other people. Finally, he says, you walk humbly with your God. It comes from a Hebrew word that simply means carefully. It speaks of an attitude that it's the opposite to pride. So what's humility? It's having a right view of yourself because you have a right view of God. So humility isn't, oh, I'm useless, I'm a worm, I'm nothing. Do you know what that is? Self-pity. And self-pity is another form of pride. 
What's pride? It's having too big a view of yourself because you have too small a view of God. This is humility. God made me. I belong to him. Every good gift I have, I have because he's given it to me. Some have more, some have less. doesn't matter to me. I thank God for what I have, and I'm going to do the best I can with what God has given me, and I'm going to leave the outcome with him. And if you live that way, it will save you so much trouble. You don't get into power games at work. You don't get into the rat race. You don't have to sell your convictions to get ahead. You don't get angry when people make stupid comments. Humility enables you just to be who you are in Christ. You don't have to worry about what others are doing or thinking. What does God want from us this Christmas time? Justice, mercy, humility. And rightly understood, these three words form the sum total of our Christian duty. If you've done those things, God will be pleased. If you don't, nothing else makes much difference. But there's a question mark, right? Because that takes us back to Micah. Here was a group of worshippers who couldn't pull that off. God didn't accept their sacrifices. God didn't accept their worship. God turned them down. And so that leaves us with a question. Will, will God accept what we're doing today? How I live? Because those Israelites offered God the one thing so everything but the one thing he wanted, which was their hearts. Religion, I want to say, is useless unless the heart belongs to God. I want to explain what I mean. It was June the 7th, 1964. They'd all gathered together at the local Methodist church like they normally did. They were having another one of their get-togethers. And as usual, they started with a prayer. Of course, they prayed. They were God's chosen people, saved by Jesus to bless the world. And on this particular night, someone wrote down the prayer that they prayed. Sam Bowers, their preacher and leader, prayed this prayer. O God, our heavenly guide, as finite creatures of time and as dependent creature of thine, we acknowledge thee as our sovereign Lord. Permit freedom and the joys thereof to forever reign throughout our land. May the sweet cup of brotherly fraternity ever be ours to enjoy, to build within us that kindred dot, dot, dot. And as the members of that assembly said amen and prayed that prayer in Jesus' name, the group called the Ku Klux Klan got up and started to plan how to carry out God's goal for white supremacy. It's easy to see, looking back, how far that group was from the heart of God. But doesn't that leave you with a question as you come to church this morning and sing? What does God want from us? At worst, people reject and ignore God at Christmas time. At best, they're here. And somewhere in the middle, there could be people like this. There's a bizarre little story in the book of Joshua where Joshua's leading the people of Israel into Canaan and he's suddenly visited by an angel of the Lord and Joshua has such tunnel vision that he immediately asks the angel, are you with me or for our enemies? I like the story because I think that's exactly what religious people do. We approach God like Joshua. We say, are you with me or them? 
After the KKK dismissed the night they prayed together, they left armed to the teeth with rope and shotguns to fight the civil rights movement that was invading their Mississippi. And within a few days, three civil rights workers were dead in Jesus' name. It's easy to see how far, you know, in 2020 hindsight, how far they were from the heart of God. They'd made God, they'd made Jesus into their own image. And we can fall prey to that too. At least I can. I've noticed that Jesus is never against the cause that I'm for. He's rarely interested in calling me towards self-sacrifice. He's rarely interested in calling me to to be merciful to people different to me. N.T. Wright uh, put it this way. There's the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, This is what he wrote about letting Jesus stand on his own. My proposal is not that we know what the word God means and manage somehow to fit Jesus into that. Instead, I suggest that we think historically about a young Jew possessed of a desperately risky, indeed apparently crazy vocation, riding into Jerusalem in tears, denouncing the temple and dying on a Roman cross, and we somehow allow our meaning for the word God to be recentered around that point. In other words, the scandal is not that Jesus is like God, the scandal is that God is like Jesus. He's a God who picked a certain place and time and entered into it. He came to show us who he really was and also who he really wasn't. He came as a baby, grew to be a Jewish carpenter in a particular time and place, not to speak about our every little agenda, but for the redemption of the whole world. This is why Jesus came. Matthew 12. He will proclaim justice to the nations. When Mary sang at Jesus' birth, she said, His mercy extends to all who fear him. And he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. This is the heart of the gospel, and this is why Jesus came. What God wants from us this Christmas, he first gave to us. Jesus came to establish justice. Jesus came to show mercy. Jesus came to lift up the humble. What God requires, he first gives. What a gift. Now, one of the most important things to get from this passage is our relationship to God in all this. For Micah's audience, God had initiated the relationship by rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. He gave them a teacher of the law, that was Moses, and promised them a land that would be theirs. They're to love him in response to that grace, that goodness. For us, we've been rescued from slavery of our own, from sin. We've been given a teacher, that's Jesus, and promised an inheritance. And we're to love out of that relationship. The response expected by God both in the past and for us today is not simply being obedient, but it's loving that obedience. Husband might say to a wife, what do you want from me? What do you want? I put food on the table. I'm faithful. I play with the kids. What else do you want? And the wife says, I want you. I want you to ask about me. I want you to know me. I want you to deal gently with me. You can see what the Israelites were missing, right? We love God because he loved us. And what we needed and what we need to please God, he's given to us in Jesus. The Israelites didn't have that. And so 
In the opening verses of chapter 7, Micah compares Israel to a vineyard which has not produced any fruit. He looks at it and says, look at verse 1. What misery is mine? I'm like the one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Here's Micah, all alone. One righteous man among all the sinful. And apart from him, the spiritual crop is dead, is dry, is barren. It's completely failed. Micah stands among his people as Jesus stands among us. Micah, the only righteous one in a relative sense. Jesus, the only righteous one in an absolute sense. This is the heart of the gospel. What the Lord requires of us, he first gave to us in Jesus. Jesus came for justice. He came to show mercy and he came to lift up the humble. And Micah foreshadows Jesus again and again in chapter 7. It doesn't whisper his name, it shouts his name. This is a prophet paving the way for Christ. Look with me again as, uh, as Micah says, what misery is mine? Do you remember when Jesus approached Jerusalem? He said, oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Bribery and corruption are rife. Micah says these sins, they're like a briar or a thorn hedge, and your corrupt practices are so entangled that they're impenetrable. And so he says, Jerusalem must be destroyed, root and branch. And that's what he promises. The day of your watchman has come, verse 4. The day God visits you. Now is the time of your confusion. You can't stop the judgment of God. You You simply have to run to a safe place. Now, of course, many of us take that safe place to be our family and friends. Man's home is his castle. After a tough day at the office, I go home to lick my wounds in the arms of my wife and the love of my kids. Next Thursday, I'm going to spend time with my family. If, if you were to ask the average Aussie bloke, what's your religion? I think even the most thoughtful, non-religious Aussie would say, mate, my religion is my family. Don't talk to me about God, Jesus, the Bible, church. Give me something more real. Give me something tangible. I'll tell you what's real, being a good bloke, looking after your family, and being a mate. And that's Aussie religion. Friendship, mateship, and family. Micah says, on the day of judgment, your family and your friends are not a refuge. There's only one refuge. He says, don't trust a neighbor, verse 5. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace. Guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. And you might not have realized this, but Jesus picks up on Micah's prophecy about family life. He warns about the judgment to come when he returns. He says this in Matthew 10. Brother will betray brother to death, a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Don't suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth? 
I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For, and here he is quoting Micah 7, Matthew chapter 10. For a man, I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says, don't run to your family. Run to me. Jesus intensifies Micah's prophecy. Micah says, this is going to be what it's like in the judgment. And Jesus says, yeah, and I'm the one who's going to bring it. More than that, if you don't love me more than your mum, more than your dad, more than your brother, more than your sister, you're not worthy of me. Like, if current affair, or today, tonight, heard me speaking, got onto this, it would be a scandal. This is Jesus, the home wrecker. And I've got to say, I've got a vested interest in keeping families together. If I explode my marriage somehow, I expect a letter from the archbishop asking for my resignation. In the last six years, I've prepared a bunch of um, non-church couples for marriage. And what I do, I, I encourage them to build their relationship on Jesus and the Bible. And I have a bit of a spiel. I say, look, between one in three and one in two marriages will end in divorce within the first 10 years. I say, none of us expects to be a statistic, but there's a big risk. And so I, I say, prepare, read your Bible, do your marriage course. And at every marriage that I do, I say with the prayer book, in marriage, a new family is established in accordance with God's purpose, so that children may be born and nurtured in secure and loving care for their well-being and instruction and for the good order of society to the glory of God. I believe that. I believe that. Yet, with all those concessions, we need to hear Jesus on this. He says there's something more important. I must make an individual response to my creator and redeemer, Jesus Christ. My eternal destiny is at stake. But if I say, oh, mate, my religion is my family. I'm a good bloke. The King Jesus of the Bible says this to me. Anyone who loves his mother, father, son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. But there Micah stands alone. And where does he look for his hope? Verse 7. He says, as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. You don't run anywhere else except to God revealed in Jesus Christ. And God will hear you when you wait in hope for him. Yeah, even though Australia is one of the most prosperous and secure places in the world, even then, there is no guarantee that we'll have a long and happy life. Death can come knocking at any time, especially when we least expect it. And tragically, on Tuesday morning, death came knocking for Katrina Dawson and Tory Johnson, the two people killed by the gunman in Martin Place. Dying in a siege at the hands of a gunman in the prime of their lives, would have been the last thing that they expected as they got up the previous Monday morning. And yet it happened. 
there are no guarantees. And as a Christian, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic about the future. I'll tell you what I am. I'm hopeful. Hopeful, confident in that hope that one day evil will be punished, that wrongs will be righted, that peace will rule the earth forever. And so as a Christian, I don't fear and I don't despair. Rather, I depend on the resurrected King Jesus Christ to take care of me and to bring me home. And we're going to see that now in chapter 7 as we look at verses 8 and 10. Because Micah continues to speak, but what he does, he speaks as if he is Jerusalem. He says, I, 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 all the way through. I have fallen. I rose again. I sinned against the Lord. I bear his wrath until I see the light again and his righteousness, and then I will be victorious. Do you know what Micah's doing? He's pointing us to another man who came to Jerusalem and said, I, all the way through. That was the Lord Jesus Christ, who fell and then rose again, who identified with his sinful people, that though he knew no sin, he became sin for us, who entered into our tragedy and bore the wrath of God until he saw the light of life and still he saw justice and light when God justified him and raised him from the dead and in so doing the once fallen one rose and triumphed over all his and our enemies. Micah points to Jesus and his resurrection for us. How valuable are you? How loved are you? That just like Jerusalem was judged and destroyed, Jesus was judged and destroyed for, for us. We praise God for that. How valuable we are. How precious we are to God that Jesus identified with sin in that way on our behalf. And so as for me, I, I watch in hope for the Lord and I wait for God my Saviour revealed in Jesus Christ My God will hear me. He's shown it in Jesus. Jesus who identified with my sin. And my sin was punished with him at the cross. Do you know there's no jihad in following Jesus? Literally the word is struggle. And you see young men struggling to bring about something in the world. But Jesus says, you come to me and you don't struggle. I've done the struggling for you. I've identified as Jerusalem for you and I have been judged and condemned, smashed, torn out, root and branch for you. And now you stand forgiven and a friend and set back in your place. You know, in the Christian understanding of reality, the world is not some kind of chaotic random accident that's just going to continue forever. According to to God in the Bible, 2,000 years ago, a baby was born who was promised to be king of the universe, the one who will bring justice and who will bring healing. And so even this week, be it Martin Place or Peshawar or Cairns, even this week, we have enormous hope. No matter how many terrorist acts 
ISIS and its affiliates commit, even on Australian soil. We know it's not the end. Justice will be done. Healing will come to the earth in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jerusalem falls. Jerusalem rises. It's like a death and resurrection. It's kind of like Jerusalem bore the wrath for sin. But then it sees light and righteousness, just like the, the Lord Jesus. And a new start comes for the city of Jerusalem. Look at verses 11, 12, and 13. The day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. In that day, literally, people will come from every corner, near and far. Assyria, the cities of Egypt. Who are the people? They're the people that have watched in hope for the Lord who've waited for God, their saviour. Yeah, the ultimate fulfilment in this prophecy, it's not when Zechariah and Haggai and all those characters went back and rebuilt Jerusalem. It's not found in taking your once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to Jerusalem on an aeroplane. The fulfilment to this prophecy is found in the words of Paul, in the free Jerusalem that's, that's above Galatians 4. Because when we come to God and believe in Jesus Christ, humble ourselves before him, he lifts him up. And we learn from the author of Hebrews that we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. It's a city that we see by faith, but it's the same city that Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob looked forward to, and which John saw in the Revelation coming down from heaven dressed as a bride for her husband. And in that city, there will be more than enough space For the redeemed of every corner of our globe, people from every nation, from every era of humankind. And here in verse 14, Micah calls upon the shepherd king. Scott and Pete told us about the shepherd king over the last couple of weeks. He calls upon the shepherd king to shepherd this people. Jerusalem's like a massive sheep pen. So effective is the judgment of the earth, and so safe and secure is his flock that the flock lives by itself. There's no threats. We're just at peace. There's another group that crawls out of the earth. They come out from their holes in the ground. Look at verse 16. These are not sheep. These are snakes. Their hiding places are exposed. The war is lost, And so they crawl out of their holes, hands on their heads, and they come trembling to Jerusalem as the Lord's defeated enemies. This is what Revelation says about that event. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For, great, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? This is how Jesus comes in fulfillment of this prophecy. He comes as the shepherd king who will shepherd you in peace and safety. But he also comes in judgment for those who do not turn to him in repentance and faith and humbly come to him as that shepherd king. Those who do not wait in hope and watch for their salvation. 
But it's God's mercy on his enemies that brings into sharp relief the great gift of forgiveness. Because where are you going to see God's forgiveness and mercy in all its richness? You see it against the backdrop of his judgment on his enemies. And so Micah finishes in praise of the Lord. And his, his last word is that mercy triumphs over, over judgment. Look at verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. It's it's wonderful. It's the wonder of God's forgiveness. For those in the New Jerusalem, God does not stay angry forever. He comes as a good shepherd and the sheep know him. They hear his voice. He delights to show them mercy. And there's two beautiful pictures of this mercy that are worth pondering. In verse 20, God treads on the sins. It's kind of like stamping out a a used cigarette butt. They're like cockroaches underfoot, those sins. They're stamped on, they're gone. And God does that. And second, God takes all our sins, our iniquities, and he hurls them into the depths of the sea. Yeah, that happens with our sewerage. It gets treated and disinfected, and then it gets pumped out a few kilometers offshore, and it just disappears. God will flush away your sin. He'll treat and disinfect it at the cross of his son, and then he'll pump it kilometers offshore, and it will be dispersed into the very depths of the deepest ocean of his mercy and his kindness and his grace. And so as a Christian, I'm I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic about the future. But I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful and I'm confident that one day evil will be punished, wrongs will be righted, and peace will rule the earth forever. And so I don't fear and I don't despair. Instead, I depend on the resurrected King, Jesus Christ, to take care of me, to shepherd me, and one day bring me home. The events in the world, really, over the last seven days have not ruined Christmas. Nothing can ruin Christmas. For the coming of Jesus into the world is greater than any other event. And if anything, what, what has gripped our hearts this week in the news only serves to demonstrate how necessary, but also how wonderful Christmas is. Who is the God who takes our sin and wickedness upon himself in such a way? It's our Lord Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Who is like God, demonstrated in Jesus, who came to establish justice, to show mercy, and to lift up the humble? And when you understand that, you can do justice, be merciful, and walk carefully with your God. And that is a beautiful gift for Christmas. I'm going to pray. 
Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. And even this week, we don't fear and we don't despair, but we depend on our resurrected King who has promised to take care of us and one day bring us home. Who is a God like Jesus? Amen.